This is Joya Italiano. This is Jeff Ekman. And welcome to Oh, That's a Thing, a podcast about the real science and sci-fi movies. Even if you haven't seen the movie, don't worry. We use the movies as jumping off points for some pretty awesome and real topics. That's right. We're not experts at all. We're actually just a couple of goons who Googled some stuff. But this stuff is pretty cool. Yeah, so sit back, relax, maybe learn a thing or two. Here we go. Here we go. Somebody stop me. We're smoking. (laughs) No, literally stop. All right, I will. (laughs) I I will stop. (laughs) We We, did the mask. Yeah, I know. Jim Carrey's the mask, which I watched a million times as a kid and hadn't seen in maybe 15 years. Yeah. What a movie. Oh, man. Let's listen to the trailer. Yeah. This is the story of Stanley Ipkiss. Stanley, you are the nicest guy. His job is at the bank. You're 40 minutes late. Now that's the same as stealing. I'm sorry, Mr. Dickey. It, it'll never happen again. He loves his dog. Come on, man. Give him to me. Drop it. And the most exciting thing in his life are his pajamas. But now... Hey, you! What are you doing down there? I'm just looking for... All that is about to change because Stanley Ipkiss is not the man he used to be. Smoking! Jim Carrey is... That's the guy! Hello! The Mask. Somebody stop me! Delightful romp. What a romp. Yeah. It did hold up better than I expected it to. I mean, it held up in all the delightful ways. Jim Carrey's always going to hold up with his antics. So this is based on a Dark Horse comic book series, which I was not familiar with at all. But apparently in the comic, the mask removes all social and moral inhibitions, which causes the wearer to become insane. It's like a combination of the Joker, Steve Ditko's version of the Creeper, who I'm not familiar with, and then Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Uh. So in the comic books, wearers would become dangerous and cruel anti-heroes at best or villains with ultra-violent tendencies at worst. So Chuck Russell, who's the director, was saying that the the script started off that way before they like revamped it all to fit Jim Carrey. Although I did read that Matthew Broderick, Steve Martin, Rick Moranis, and Martin Short were all... When you're that big of a deal. And he actually did for a lot longer than I anticipated. And I think he's sane. I actually think he's woke as fuck. It's just weird for us to see Jim Carrey now being like a grizzled, haggard old man being like, here I am staring into the camera, being all existential and shit. You've been referencing Jim and Andy, and that's a Netflix documentary that if you guys haven't seen it, you should go out and see it. He talks about his experience playing Andy Kaufman in Man on the Moon, which was a time where he was really losing his mind. Yeah, yeah. And he, was he talks going pretty openly method. about that whole thing. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, because at one point he's like, Andy came up and tapped me on the shoulder and he said, I'll be doing my movie. I know. I like, know. What? Okay. It, look, I love Pacino. <laughs> I love the method actors. I, but at a certain point, you're just sort of like, all right. Yeah, we'll go over it sounds but, like the director, Milos Foreman, had a lot of problems with him. A lot but, of issues. Anyway. Anyway, with this movie, The Mask, this is from the writer of Time Cop. Oh, God, of course. Who, who also recently did Daredevil on Netflix and also wrote for Battlestar Galactica I and stuff. I Daredevil. I know. We've talked about that. Also from the writer of Face Off. Yes. Yep. You talked about that. Uh-huh. Ai, Chihuahua. <laughs> and what the, a delight. The director of this also did The Blob, Eraser, and The Scorpion King. So it's a, an interesting pedigree. Yeah. This movie was nominated for an Oscar for Best Visual Effects, but lost to Forrest Gump. Which I had the like visual effects, but then you just pointed out. Yeah, yeah, he had mentioned this before, and I was saying like, well, yeah, because they superimpose forest into all of these like historical scenes. Yeah, you got JFK JFK shaking his hand and being like, I believe he said he had to go pee, you know. And so guess that deserves an Oscar. (laughs) 
So as I was saying before, like the mask turns you into a psycho no matter what. But right. in the movie, the wearers become basically versions of their own personality or like heightened mm -hmm. cartoonish versions of that. So Stanley Ipkiss is obsessed with cartoons. So several times throughout the movie, the mask like acts like the Tasmanian devil right. or Pepe Le Pew or Bugs Bunny. And then the wolf, the it's cartoon like, oh, wolf. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, being <laughs> a total sexist monster. Yeah. <laughs> Tongue rolls out under the table. <laughs> Ooh. A lot of augas. So, yeah, I mean, I look, the best part of this movie forever and always is just Jim Carrey. I don't, yeah. I mean, like you were saying before that this movie holds up remarkably and I'm like, yeah, it honestly does. It's really not, with all of the movies that we've watched that we've been like, oh man, that's right. a little insensitive. Yeah, no. It's like, yeah, there's some dick jokes here and there. and the, There's some up the butt humor. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's not like Ace Ventura where the whole premise is like, I kissed a man. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, <killed myself. laughs> I still can't believe right. that. Chuck Russell, the director, was saying that a lot of money was saved on special effects because Jim Carrey's movements were so flexible and cartoonish that they didn't need to digitally enhance as much. I like that as like, you hear these stories about like Bruce Lee and Jet Li, yeah, people like that, where it's like shit. they had to literally slow them down right. so that you could see what they are. And I like this as like the comedy version of that martial yeah. art ability where right. it's like, he's so over the top that you need to un-CG him. Right, totally. Well, I mean, it's like clearly for the shit where he's like literally bouncing around, like bouncing off the walls yeah, and like yeah, turning yeah. into the tornado. They he do was that, capable of doing that. Yeah, that yeah. was completely unedited <laughs> raw. Yeah. But I just think it's, yeah, think about Jim Carrey. Of course, like mm -hmm. some of those poses that he's doing. I've also read that the crazy oversized teeth were originally only supposed to be used during silent moments. But oh. of course, Jim Carrey learned how to fucking talk with them because he's a genius. Oh, because they, that, they was, didn't yeah. understand. Were those just prosthetic teeth? Like yeah. he just jammed them into his mouth totally. and then figured out how to still do his thing? Yep. So they originally were wow. supposed to be just like, I hear your face. But then right, right. he actually just learned to talk with them, which makes it that much better because it like the yeah. whole time is like, do I feel lucky? Like just struggling so much to it's, talk with those teeth. It's really unnerving the way yeah. his teeth are. Because yeah. like that was something else is like as an adult now I can see how the makeup was done but as a kid I was literally like how did they turn his face into that other face yeah what's with the, exactly who I don't even know how long he sat in the makeup chair I'm sure it was forever but probably less than that other green makeup the Grinch oh yes the Grinch was, and he didn't have to wear those uncomfortable that. contacts oh yeah oh I was gonna say the well that moment where he pulls the condom the wet condom out of his pocket oh, and he's yeah. like sorry wrong pocket yeah, yeah, the yeah, auctioneer yeah. or whatever he that was ad libbed. There was a ton of shit that was ad libbed in this movie, and Classic I feel like, Jim. yeah, again, it's the, it, like take the movie and the script and the story and whatnot aside, which is fine. Right. Jim Carrey just makes this fucking movie. Although we did mention the next level hotness of <laughs> Miss fucking Cameron Diaz, Cameron Diaz introducing Cameron Diaz looking extraordinary. She's just insane. And being extraordinary. Yeah. Like, dude, she's well, so magnetic. Well, that's what's crazy is like the producers originally suggested Anna Nicole Smith for the role of Tina, uh -huh. which makes sense because yep. she's very like Jessica Rabbit cartoonish Right, and Look. of that era, like, wasn't yeah. she also in Naked Gun 33 and a third, she which was like a, was. almost the same yeah. year? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And they, I guess they also considered Vanessa Williams and Christy Swanson, okay. original Buffy, which is fascinating, but I guess the, the, the decision was reversed when they found Ms. Diaz while she was leaving a modeling agency, and she just also happened to be charismatic as fuck, and thus began an illustrious career. A star was born. Science. So this is going to be a big drink for title section oh, because yes. I looked into masks. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, we all wear them. Yes, Metaphorically we all. speaking. Metaphorically speaking. <laughs> <laughs> now, the oldest discovered mask is from 7000 BC, but of course mask making could be older, but the materials they used like leather and wood did not. 
survive. Okay. So the earliest masks were used for rituals and ceremonies, and they were found all over the world. Like, African masks were carved out of wood and decorated, and they were used in ceremonies to communicate with ancestral spirits or totem animals. Mm -hmm. And some masks even symbolized different attributes, like masks with closed eyes symbolized tranquility, while bulging foreheads symbolized wisdom, because you got a big fat brain. Yeah. And then war masks are made to scare the enemy with big eyes and an angry face. In Oceania, which is basically just the Pacific Islands, tribal societies erected six-meter-high masks representing ancestors. In North America, Inuit groups and woodland tribes use so-called false faces for shamanic rituals of healing. For example, the Pacific Northwest coastal groups have skilled woodworkers that make masks from wood, leather, bones, feathers, and they even have moving pieces, which is pretty cool. Oh, that is cool. They were also used in exorcising evil spirits from the sick. Oh, cool. When you say that they were made out of bones, were they using, like, the face skull bones? No, I think they were made out of like animal bones. Oh, okay. So yeah, like the movable sense. parts, like totally. I, they can make it move. Yeah. I, I think what I found so fascinating about this was kind of this, the you know, the interesting overlap between what started as like religious rituals and ceremonies and then led into performance. Right. Because I've, I'm sure I mentioned on the show before, but I studied at Italian clown school and for like a semester, let's not get it twisted. I studied abroad when I was at Sarah Lawrence. Well, you always say, I'm a clown. I'm I'm a a clown. I'm a clown. But she means it. I literally (laughs) mean it. She literally means it. And and it was cool because I studied Comedia dell'arte, which is like, mask work you know right. what I mean but it was the, it was the comedy it's these original archetypes that each have their own representation through the mask so like when I was there I made a mask for Il Dottore the doctor who had kind of like a pig pug nose and he's like Ooh. a big dude and like talks a lot but doesn't say a lot and I was okay. like I identify with that <laughs> <laughs> I think we both do. Rambling lot, not saying much. (laughs) Yeah, so, you know, and of course I wanted to dive into the history of of masks for performance, but I feel like that's gone all over the world for as long as humans have been around. So (laughs) the dramatic, like... The dramatic masks, they're tragedy and and comedy. Yeah, Yeah, those were the words I was looking for. (laughs) It was like happy, sad, grumpy, dopey, whatever it is. Read about examples of masks being used for disguise during the time Mm. of the Republic of Venice. For example, Venice had very strict class hierarchies so people wore these like stylish masks to just intermingle to just like both hide their identity and not necessarily like pretend to be a person in general but just mingle I just want to be a, you know it's like dressing in the nines to get into the club you're like drop names oh okay <laughs> like, okay my I cousin see. <laughs> uh, yeah so um, and then of course Societies have used masks for punishment and humiliation. I've read about something called the Scold's Bridal, which was used basically back in the day for like women that were gossipers and stuff. It was like this metal fucking thing that kept her from talking. Oh, yeah, that's no good. Where does the Iron Mask come in? (laughs) Man in the the man in the. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I should look into that because I mean that was that that a real punishment, like just an iron helmet or something? I think so. I think they had shit like that. I know. I mean, the kinds of stuff that I saw. Even like torture museums and like death museums throughout Europe and stuff is fucking insane. And then, you know, you think about like even Hannibal Hannibal Lecter's mask, like that's protection from Mm. everyone else. Silence of the lambs. (laughs) God. That's Silence of the Lamps. To, to, yeah, Silence of the Lamps, yeah. No, no, I'm quoting the to cable guy cable where it's guy. another Jim Carrey movie. He takes his skin from the chicken at medieval times, yes, puts it on his face, and goes, Silence of the Lamps. Yeah. You can tell we're 90s kids because yes, we know all the Jim Carrey movies. If you haven't figured that out by now, I don't know we what like show him. you've been listening to. He's a great guy. 
So what I really wanted to look into was the death mask. Mm. Now, in ancient Egypt, a death mask depicted the face of the deceased. Now, the most famous of which is probably King Tutankhamun's mask. You okay. think of like the gold thing on his sarcophagus. The and face. that was also like an actual representation of his real face. Right. Yeah. So it wasn't a, a clearly wasn't like a cast. It was made out of gold and whatnot, but uh -huh. it still just had features of the person's face. Mm -hmm. So this was believed to protect the soul from evil spirits on the way to the afterworld and make the dead person's spirit stronger. I also read it was so the soul could recognize the body and return to it. Be like, oh. I know those dimples. Yeah. <laughs> that mask is me. <laughs> That's a great ah, way. Caveman brow. Yeah. Let me head home. A beacon like it's like you can't find your car in the parking right. lot yeah totally <laughs> beep beep so ancient Romans used wax to sculpt the deceased's face and this was said to give urns a human look okay so again not like a cast of the face but someone was just like ah oh, let me but it's so to me it's just horrifying to think about like my ashes being held in my face <laughs> yeah like well your ashes or like your body well, it was saying to give urns a human look. Oh, yeah. So, the like, the thing that holds... So they're taking oh. wax, making it out of your... Like, sculpting that your fucking face and That's putting you in... way creepy. Yeah, right? <laughs> I wouldn't like, want that. Like, are we paying homage or are we freaking everybody out? I liked what you said earlier about the masks being, like, a a way of like protecting the people's souls yeah. as they go into the afterlife. Cause totally. I almost like that. It's a conceptual piece of armor. Yeah, definitely. Well, especially with all of like the traveling on the Nile and right. this river sticks right. to the underworld and all that shit. But yeah. like talked before when I did the, the section on cemeteries and like crazy right. cemeteries in the world. And there was that one, I think in like Russia or someplace, some Eastern European country where the gravestones have like, pictures or like little scenes from your life. Yeah, like because we talked about caricatures. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, how would I be depicted? Right. You know? <laughs> On my gravestone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so in China, shamanic masks were used at death ceremonies. This is when they started making casts. So a mask okay. was made after the person died. So the face was covered with plaster or wax and then a cast was made even though the, the facial features were pretty distorted. And I went on a huge Google image search of like, just death masks and they're fucking weird. Like, it's very unnerving because you're like, it's a face. It's right. the most realistic thing, but it's also a little odd and it's also, you're clearly a dead face. But I like it as like the earliest form of special effects. Yeah, totally. I mean, sometimes they placed eyes on the death mask to Man. make it look alive. Oh, don't do that. Yeah, it's fucking crazy. So like death masks were made for nobility and famous folks like Napoleon, Isaac oh. Newton, Beethoven, which I saw Napoleon's, it's like... I think what was awesome was it was the most realistic way I was able to imagine what he fucking looked like. Yeah. I've seen millions of paintings of him. Right. But like to be like, look at his tiny fucking narrow little face. Yeah. No wonder he had such a complex. An actual, an actual <laughs> like sculpture is going to represent yeah. the person. Yeah. Yeah. That's because uh, the, yeah, these people before photographs, we only have certain types of interpretive yeah. representations of them. There's something about being able to picture somebody the way they really were. Right. To see that kind of humanity to be like that was just a person who did that right. thing and not like a figure in your historical textbook I mean thank goodness for Instagram am I right yeah, oh yeah <laughs> you know? so well yeah because exactly like you're saying it's not like we haven't seen portrayals or representations of him but they're all very presentational right. they're very like he is posing for this this Painting. It's not a literal representation of his face. Right. Maximilien Robespierre, King Louis XVI, and Queen Marie Antoinette. Wow. Isn't that nuts to think like all of these Madame Tussauds exhibits all over the fucking world was as a result of this woman who was making death masks of people who were beheaded in the French Revolution? Yeah, I just figured that she was like a novelty con concept person. Totally. Like who thought of this museum thing. Yeah. And was like, you know what would 
be cool is like if you saw celebrities without actually having them to be there. Absolutely. But like, doesn't it make sense? It just made me feel like, okay, if we ever do House of Wax, right. the 2004 <laughs> remake starring Paris Hilton, I would love to, to even just learn about Madame Tussauds. So like, yeah. how do you end up in that? Like, how do you reconcile the fact that you're an artist with being like, here's a corpse bed? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder what Ripley's story is. Yeah, exactly. Is, believe it believe or not, it or museum. Not. Final few tidbits. A mask taken from the living is called a life mask. Okay. And famous life masks were made of Abraham Lincoln and George Washington. These are not quite as unnerving because the eyes are not closed and dead right so you still are just like oh George oh founding father's head cool right. that's what but he looked like there's still something unnerving about it because it's made of wax right. and you're like wait there's like someone still is dead behind those right. eyes yeah I mean it is still a little weird going to Madame Tussauds right. you're po- I posed with Prince and I was like I don't know was, did you look a lot like Prince too I or? saw him eye to eye because we're the same height <laughs> <laughs> Now, physiognomy is the assessment of character or personality from a person's outer appearance, especially the face. Okay. And for these studies, they use life masks to study like criminal features. This is what, like reading, judging a book by its cover. Though. It seems like a one-way ticket to fucking profiling, right? right. But for whatever reason, they were using it because, okay, for example, there's a famous criminal mask of William Burke that was taken shortly before his execution. And Burke was this serial killer in the 19th century who sold murdered bodies for use in anatomy lessons. Oh. So he was sentenced to death by hanging and then publicly dissected at the Edinburgh Medical College, which is just like... Ironic. I know, like, (laughs) we we have no respect for you whatsoever. We're going to dissect you in front of everybody. Insult to injury. So, yeah, I mean... I guess it is interesting to study, but it's like, don't, that's not how you study who's a criminal and who's not, is like random facial features. (laughs) (laughs) Finally, 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 perhaps the most famous death mask of all is the face of an unidentified woman drowned in the river sign used as the mold for rescue Anne, the CPR training mannequin. Oh, I think I knew (laughs) about this, that like... (laughs) Yeah, the CPR training mannequin that's in like every single class yeah. is a real person's and face. And I saw her face and I was like, it's training in. Wow. They used her fucking face to teach us all how to breathe life into an we unconscious body. So All have touched Thanks, lips Anne. to those lips. <laughs> it's fucking weird. It's fucking weird. Thanks, Anne. <laughs> Thank you, Anne. So in this movie... Jim Carrey's a big fan of cartoons. He copies the cartoon wolf, as we mentioned, and the Tasmanian devil. Mm -hmm. And I looked into actual Tasmanian devils (laughs) because their birthing process and like the first few days of their life is really fucked up and interesting. Oh, real? Okay. So basically, a Tasmanian devil gives birth to about 30 to 50 pups, Mm -hmm. but she only has four teats to feed them. So as soon as the pups are born, they begin to fight for access to the teats. They have these sharp claws, and they bite and scratch and try to kill their own brothers and sisters, starting literally eight seconds after they're born. They literally try to kill them? Yes. Not just, oh, Yes. So they're marsupials, which means that they have a pouch like a kangaroo. So all of this is going down inside the mom's pouch. And, like, I guess there's, like, crazy writhing and squealing happening on the inside. And then... It's extremely rare for more than a handful of pups to survive, and when they crawl out of the pouch to come up to feed, they're covered in the wounds from their brothers and sisters and, like, the blood of their dead siblings. Oh, God. So they're all covered in gross. Then they attach to a nipple, which expands, locking their jaw onto it, and they stay there for a hundred days. What? Yeah. The fuck? (laughs) The mother then eats the dead young to gain back some strength. 
Ooh. So you're born among like 30 to 50 brothers and sisters. Right. You claw and scratch your way to survival. Three or four of you survive and you attach to a nipple where you stay for 100 days. Imagine if you were the youngest. It's already hard being the youngest. <laughs> exactly. The runt on, of the litter. I don't think. murdered. And <laughs> exactly. I mean, it does seem like a good evolutionary tactic in a way. Yeah. As fucked up as it is. Well, I mean, it at least gives context to why Tasmanian devils are called that. Right. A little it bit, does, right? Like I does. because clearly the cartoon I'm like, what do they move around quickly? Do they like spin? Wh- yeah, like yeah. why was he the representation of this animal? But Yeah. Sounds like a fucking frenzy, a tornado of carnage. Exactly. Like I feel like we've talked about how jarring and shocking the process of being born must be for humans. Yeah. And that it's good that we don't remember it. But yeah, I just just being born and instantly your brother's trying to kill you. Yeah. It's like that didn't happen for me until I was like teens. Right, right. I mean, it's also just fascinating to think where the 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 instinctual nature comes from. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's like you we've seen puppies; they're fucking useless. You know what right. I mean? But to think that certain animals with it, even just like horses and shit, they stand up after like thirty seconds of being born, it's and so meanwhile weird. we're just useless idiots for like four years and we'll have to post a picture of this because these things when they're born they look like little lima beans like they don't even look they don't have eyes and ears yet all they are is a mouth and some claws and they're like these tiny literally four of them can fit on the head of a dime oh that's how tiny they are when they're all squirming around trying to get that at least makes a little bit more sense in terms of her having 30 pups at once, though, too. Right. Because I was like, fuck. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's like, how do you fit them all in there? So at some point in this movie, they refer to the mask as being like a walking id or something. Like whoever mm-hmm. whoever he is, the criminal or whatever, is right. a walking id in here. <laughs> so... <laughs> So I wanted to do a little refresher course for myself on Sigmund Freud's id, ego, and super ego Mm. theory, because I learned about this in fucking humanities in high school or something like that, but it's, you know, it was worth, I mean, it's the basis of so much psychoanalytical theory that is worth knowing. I mean, to be honest, it's one of those things that I like often act like I know what I'm talking about surrounding, and I'm like, which one was the super ego, and how does that work? Because we know what, like, we use ego, like, so we were like, of course we we know know what that means. But, Okay, so just to to break it down, so Sigmund Freud, famous psychoanalyst, he -hmm. saw the psyche structured into three parts, the id, the ego, and the superego. These are all developing at different stages in our lives. Now, these are not parts of the brain or in any way physical, and although each part of the personality comprises unique features, they interact to form a whole, and each part makes a relative contribution to an individual's behavior. So it's kind of like they're all kind of in contrast with each other and everything. Yeah, or like rather... one may be more in power than the others in this day, Yeah, but... it, it's kind of like that they build on each other, okay. and they do all work, and it's... I'll explain, because it also oh, has to do with, with <laughs> you know, with Sigmund Freud's theory of psychosexual development and stuff. So it kind of happens, okay. like, as you age. Okay. But basically, the id, or the it, is the primitive and instinctive component of personality. It consists of all the inherited or biological components of personality present at birth. This includes the sex or life instinct, eros, which contains the libido, and thanatos, which is the aggressive or death instinct. Okay. So the id is the impulsive and unconscious part of our psyche. So a newborn child is all id and only later develops an ego and a superego. Makes yeah. sense 
that the the mask is considered a walking id because he's totally. just basically so this operates on the pleasure principle which is the idea that every wishful impulse should be satisfied immediately regardless of the consequences that makes total sense right? well, also because we were talking recently about Carl Jung's understanding yeah. of like mm-hmm. the collective unconscious and it sounds like the collective unconscious is kind of the id in a way where it's like the stuff that we all inherit that we all are instinctively trying to do versus the personal subconscious which is like your personal life and the things that you're dealing with yeah and yet also I can see how Carl Jung's theory overlaps with the ego right because getting okay last thing about the id is that it does not change with time or experience it's not affected by reality logic or the everyday world it's Donald Trump in full force, basically. (laughs) So the ego or the I is the part of the id which has been modified by the direct influence of the external world. Okay. So it's the decision-making component of personality. It develops in order to mediate between the unrealistic id and the external real world. So ideally, the ego works by reason, whereas the id is just all chaos and totally unreasonable, right? Okay. And it operates according to the reality principle. So it works out realistic ways of satisfying the id's demands, but often compromises or postpones satisfaction to avoid negative consequences of society. So Freud made the analogy of the id being a horse while the ego is the rider. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it's trying to interpret those needs and fulfill them. Yeah. But doing it through methods that it can actually understand rather than just letting the thing run wild and, I don't know, cause a rape? Yeah, like something crazy. Well, because, yeah, you think about, you know, clearly you have the id going at all times, Mm -hmm. but that ego is there like, we can't be all id, otherwise it's complete chaos and anarchy and whatever, so. And it'll satisfy the id better than the id would if it was just on its own because it can understand like well the id wants this and in order to get that yes i need to not do certain things right right now in order to get a better version of that pleasure Right, because the id might want something that eventually is gonna hurt the id and the body that it's inside you know what i mean so the ego has to be like i know i want like the id is like a virus here's a here's a classic example i I feel like my id is like a party monster i want to fucking rage i want to go but when i rage the ego slash my low low tolerance and small body <laughs> yeah. tells me like you can't fucking go so hard because then you're gonna be a puddle of goo by yeah. the end of the night right <laughs> anyway so then but then let's even expand it even farther with the idea of the super ego or above eye now this develops around the age of three to five during the phallic stage of psychosexual development according to Freud mm-hmm. we'll get to his stages and I mean I'm obviously gonna cover some of the criticisms that Freud has had, but this is during the phallic stage. I thought all stages in Freud's world were phallic stages. <laughs> he named stage. It's so much sexuality in <laughs> yeah. Freud. But anyway, so the, the, the superego incorporates the values and morals of society, which are learned from one's parents and others. So its function is to control the id's impulses, especially those which society forbids, such as sex and aggression. It also has the function of persuading the ego to turn to moralistic goals rather than simply realistic ones and to strive for perfection. It consists of two systems. There's the conscience and the ideal self. So if the ego gives in to the is demands, the conscience can punish the ego through feelings of guilt. Uh, okay. The ideal self or ego ideal is an imaginary picture of how you ought to be. So this represents career aspirations, how to treat other people, how to be an upstanding citizen of society, mm. right? The super ego can reward us through the ideal self when we behave properly by making us feel proud. Okay. Love it, right? Yeah. So that's what's crazy is like reading all of this. I'm like, yeah, 
Yeah, yeah all right. this all tracks. But it also, even reading it now, it feels like such a this is a man made explanation for what our brains do and what happens during this development. This right. is clearly written by a guy in the early 20th century. By that, right? you don't mean human made, you mean man made. Man made. Yeah, yeah. Right. man yeah. and human made. Like in the sense that, like, it doesn't explain synapses, it doesn't explain chemicals necessarily. But, like, he's also talking about society and, like, this, that, and the other. But, yes, like, when I looked into whether or not Freud was still relevant today, many of the criticisms that I saw were from feminists, were basically mm. saying that many of the assumptions and theories and approaches that he had were profoundly patriarchal, anti-feminist, and misogynistic. Right. Think of like the fucking Oedipus complex shit, which is that you want right. to like bang the opposite sex member of your parents. Right. You want to bang your mom, you want to bang your dad, whatever. Right. And, and also the fact that like, first of all, he first published his book Studies on Hysteria in 1895. Right. You know, like he broke down these five stages of growth that occur from infancy through adulthood as follows. There's from zero to one and a half years old is the oral stage. Okay. 1.5 to three years of age is anal. Okay. Three to five years of age is phallic. What? Five to 12 years is latency and 12 to onward to adulthood is called genital. So already, I, I even just how why. he... Exactly. I mean, like, he's talking about the psychosexual development of children, and then it's also, like, still wrapped up in this idea of the conscious, the unconscious, and the subconscious, the id, ego, ego. But when he ego. says the anal stage, does he mean literally, like, understanding how anal sensations feel? Like, what does he mean by the anal stage? Does he mean, like, literally discovering your anus? Let me do a quick look up of that. Uh -huh. Okay, so fuck. So the anal stage is the second stage in Sigmund Freud's theory of psychosexual development lasting from age 18 months to three years. According to Freud, the anus is the primary erogenous zone and pleasure is derived from controlling bladder and bowel movements. So apparently from age three to five, you're developing that. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So, so he does see, mean anal. Yeah. Directly. He means like this is the part of your body that's fucking developing. So when you're a child, yeah. I guess when you're teething and shit. I guess teething is. Yeah, that, but when you're like means. when you're nursing, rather is what I meant to say. Uh -huh. But yeah, then three to five years is your PP is forming, <laughs> and then I don't know what latency means, but I, that's just like just general development, I guess. And then you know, anyway. So it's it's sort of it's. <laughs> so much focus on human sexuality, especially like adult human sexuality right. and also this assumed universality. Like he kind of acts right. like everybody's experience is the same, which is right. like you just can't think of it that way when you're talking about societies, right? right? And you know, it's just important to consider and basically what I gathered is that they're saying that of course it's it's important to consider his theories, but he w he came about at a time when it's not like psychology was on the up and up, right? Like no, it was at I a mean, low point. So of course it seemed like his shit was gospel truth when really after that there was Carl Jung. There was all these other myriad of fucking theories that rose up. Yeah, we've talked a lot about how like there are some scientific ideas in various fields where it's like the best idea that we had at the time and it was also what was needed in order to bridge the gap between no knowledge and the knowledge that we exactly. have today. But I do love the idea of the id, the ego, and the superego basically being this push and pull between the instincts that you inherently need to survive and the conscious mind that is like understanding how to actually achieve those goals. Hell yeah. And yeah, yeah, like that those are an internal struggle that is fundamental to humanity, I think is true. Well, yeah. I mean, 
I, I think that that Freud and so many of these theories, it's it's a perfect item to use to learn how to think. Like right. it should absolutely right. still be taught in psychology classes because you're a, you're addressing these things that we all know and experience. And he was able to put words to it and right. put, put explanations. So of course, at that time, it all made so much sense. But now, when you think about it, you're like, how many fucking projections are you putting onto this theory? Right. Like how you know how much of your own personal experience and the society in which you grew up. Right. You know, especially because we talk a ton about how we don't we're, we're only recently learning how the fucking human brain works. I basically think of of Freud's theory of the id ego superego as valuable as maybe just like an acknowledgement right. of human things that are happening, mm-hmm. but it's not necessarily an answer. Freud should definitely not be thrown out. Right. I think should be taught in every because it, like when you read it out, you're like, this is a great explanation right. for a high schooler about psychology. Right. You know what I mean? Because yeah. you're sort of like, yeah, totally. I it's mean, a great like starting understanding to then grow and build off right. of. Yeah. Or, or at least to think about the fact that it's like, yeah, why is it that I feel proud when I do something nice? Right. Like, you know, like we often ask the question on an evolutionary level of like, what is the the, the evolutionary need for altruism? For altruism, exactly. You know? Yeah. So, you know, at the end of the day, in the postmodern era, the average patient seeking treatment of a mild to moderate non-psychotic condition probably is not a good candidate for a Freudian approach, but <laughs> right. it does not mean that he's not valuable. So thanks, Dr. Freud. Enjoy that cocaine. So in the movie, they go and hang out in this park that is literally called Landfill Park. (laughs) And they comment on how the fumes from the old dump or something like that causes the sunsets to be particularly beautiful. Right. I totally forgot about that. Yeah, yeah. Turning a landfill into a park has been happening since the early 1900s. Oh. Now, part of this comes from the simple fact that a dump may serve a city for a period of time and then essentially fill up, as well as like the city will have expanded to kind of around the dump. And then that forces the people to find a new place, but that also leaves a wide open space in the middle of a city. And because there are so few wide open spaces like that in a city, and because people who live near in dense populations love an opportunity for a park rather than jamming more buildings in, yeah. the idea of making a dump nice has just grown into be a very popular idea over time. It's just empty space, man. Right. Flip it. And it makes everybody feel good if you're living next to a dump and then you turn that into a park. Like Leslie Nope would be super into it. Yeah, exactly. Unless you're like a slumlord that lives nowhere near it and wants to make more money off of poor people. But fuck those people. The Who fact cares that about we, them? Honestly, like the fact that we still have landfills is like really ridiculous to me. Well, that's something where like quickly it, the landfill, it gets a really terrible name mm-hmm. and it's really not as bad as it gets the name for. Mm-hmm. In an ideal world, we wouldn't create any waste Mm -hmm. and we would be reusing and recycling everything. But that's not the world we live in. And what's really bad is dumping all that garbage into the ocean. Mm -hmm. But when landfills are built these days, especially since EPA guidelines that were enacted in 1991, they're built with safety measures to contain the actual waste where layers and layers of barriers are set in before any waste can be dropped on top. And then when they're capped, as it's known, they can continue to build up gases, which we actually can harness to create new energy. If you can harness it, it, that's cool. Because what's the deal with, isn't it Sweden or something? Like, what's the deal with burning trash? Why can't we do that? Well, that like releases all of the bad chemicals into the atmosphere, which like this actually contains them and starts like compacting them under the ground and even though it isn't really decomposing properly it is like a thing that isn't actually affecting the wildlife because we've put in all of these barriers to it and it's actually creating energy that we can use so we know it's not affecting the wildlife 
just because fruit. they're they're being kept out. But in terms of like taking up like habitat and whatnot, is that a, is that a concern? Well, at first, when you're first doing the dump, like like I said in 1991, these new guidelines make it so that you isolate the area before you're ever putting any toxins in, so that the toxins cannot leak out into the water table, for example, mm-hmm. and then also the wildlife. I assume when a landfill is first being built, it is displaced. Mm -hmm. But eventually what you do is when the landfill fills up all the way, you drop a layer of clay over the top of it to isolate everything. Then you put other layers of isolating material and you put a bunch of equipment in to monitor it and know how like the gas buildup and Mm -hmm. various things are going on. There's also lots of sensors put in place in the surrounding area to make sure that if there is a leak, you know, because you can't be 100% sure about anything, that we can know about it and fix it very quickly. And then on top of the cap, we start dropping layers of soil and plant seeds and you end up getting like a whole group of wildlife that moves in and you can use it as a park. So is that so that's like a federal regulation. But I mean, just reports about people like living near landfills that the air quality is so bad or whatever. Like, is that just a regulation that that not everybody follows? Well, that's like open air dumps. Mm -hmm. Like this is what I'm talking about is what we do after the process is actually full and we're paving over it and we're actually covering it up Uh because when the dump is open, people go nose blind to it because it's like such a terrible smell that's in the area. And yeah, it sucks. It's like it's a thing that shouldn't exist in an ideal world. So it's not that they get a bad name. It's that open air landfill dumps are not good, but they need to figure out how to like actually do what it is that you're talking about. Well, what I meant also by they get a bad name is that a lot of people think that we're running out of space for landfills Uh and they're actually that's not really true. There's a lot of space that we could theoretically use still that is in places where there's almost no wildlife. And if we start doing it smarter, really what I'm saying is that like, you know, and and then we give the parks cute names like Mount Trashmore, which is a real place. (laughs) It's a real landfill park. Uh. And I actually remember growing up, the nearest like mini mountain thing for skiing and snowboarding and stuff like that was once a landfill. And when I I always thought it was like just a beautiful mountain. Mm -hmm. And when I was learned as a kid that it was that, I kept expecting like, Plastic bottles and stuff to be coming out of the snow. Right. And that's like something just, not, just bursts or whatever. Yeah. It's just not how it really works. And it's better <laughs> to, if you can create a scenario where that trash can then create more power and energy that's. Exactly. You know, because you're really at this stage, especially with, you know, advanced Western countries or whatever the fuck that have the money to do so, it's like people really don't want to modify their behavior as much. Right. You know exactly, what I mean? Exactly. Exactly. I, I mean, I, yeah. I'm with you. I'm with you. I just. It's just like gross uh, they're gross and then they get turned into beautiful parks with like a mini power plant underneath right it's and like, you're like eh, just don't bad. fucking name it landfill park <laughs> yeah don't That's call it that <laughs> so there's that scene where ipkiss goes and talks to ben stein for a while <laughs> yeah. trying to figure out what's going on with the mask yeah and he goes on and on about like loki yeah, loki he, something. loki was the god of mischief yeah <laughs> Ben Stein. Yeah. Weren't you going to look into Ben Stein? Yeah, well, he's a fascinating history because he started as like a speechwriter for Nixon before he got into the Ferris Bueller world. And And then before he tried to get everyone to win his money. Yeah, everybody tried to win his money. And that's how Jimmy Kimmel got his start. Is No. No. Yeah, Jimmy Kimmel was the the host. Oh, that's right. Because Ben Stein was the contestant. And so the host of the show was Jimmy Kimmel back when he was a little fat guy. That's ridiculous. So that was was a like pre-man show. 
pre-man show. Oh my god! Because that was on Comedy Central too. Right. And yeah, the, he I probably got the man, show, the man off show off of that. Yeah. Fuck that show forever. <laughs> anyway, we like him now. <laughs> yeah, he's fine. He's great. He's got a kid now. Yeah. He loves him. I wanted to learn about Loki. Yes. So I don't haven't watched any of the Thor movies, and I don't know. So forgive me, audience, if like my Marvel fans. I out don't know there if are that's like, accurate to the true right, Loki. to the true Norse mythology. <laughs> you know, but I didn't know if they mentioned any of these storylines. Did you so. come across any Infinity Stones in your research? No, is that a thing? It's from the Marvel. All right, movies. don't give me any shit. <laughs> so who is Loki? You might ask. Ooh. So in, in Norse mythology, Loki was known as the sneaky and trickster god. He yeah. was jester-like in appearance with many representations showing him dancing and sneering. His nose is often depicted as large. <laughs> oh. What do you suppose there? Oh, where did, what's the origin of that? Italian, obviously. <laughs> yes, <laughs> definitely the Italians. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny he was saying like he's the jester, dancing, sneering guy because Arlecchino in the Commedia stuff is the jester, sneaky motherfucker. So okay. Maybe it's, it almost, is it's almost like there's overlap with the you know mythologies <laughs> of the past. Yeah. Anyway, so he was also, uh, Loki was also a shapeshifter and could alter his appearance and he lived in Asgard and was often found with Thor and Odin. And what's interesting is Loki didn't have a traditional role as many other gods did. Basically, he served as more of a sidekick and he would use his like mischievous nature to both deter and then assist gods. Okay. But something that also makes Loki different is the fact that historians have had a difficult time being able to explain the meaning of his name because most of the gods have an obvious source of origin. So the accepted suggestion comes from the Viking age because the Viking noun Loki means knot or tangle, which could symbolize Loki's ability to snag others' plans. Oh, not like K-N-O-T. Yeah, K-N-O-T, sorry. And it also could be linked to Loki's ability to make nets. So he could also just make knots or he he could tangle and snag your plans. Make knots or make nets? Wait, (laughs) the nets? He was known for making nets? I don't know. Like this was such a... Oh, because he ensnares you in his trap. right. (laughs) <laughs> and you tricks you with We're the net. Cre- creating our own mythology <laughs> yeah, here. Exactly. But fuck, dude. Oh man, I entered into this world of lovely Norse mythology, which I never went thought to Asgard I would and say. learned all about it. I'm gonna tell you the myth of Loki. Have you ever heard it? N- uh, only what I know from the movie Dogma. Oh, okay. Oh, that's right. <laughs> yeah, Matt Damon played Loki. Fuck. <laughs> fuck. We have to do Dogma. George Carlin as the as the fucking cardinal. Yeah, because he's like the Buddy Christ. Buddy Christ. Yeah, I forgot ah. about that. So much fun in that. Anyway, oh, the I, myth that, that can't hold up. No, no, terrible. Oh, no, the shit monster. Come on. Yeah. Oh my god. Let's not get too tangential. No. The the myth of Loki is as follows. So one time. Loki opened up a crack to heaven, which allowed giants to reach up and take the apples of eternal life that grew in heaven's orchard. So with this crack that Loki created, time was able to enter heaven and leave all the gods with wrinkles and gray hair, which is the worst thing you could do to the gods. Yeah, (laughs) like not arthritis or Alzheimer's or anything old. Just looking like shit. Get your oil of Olay back in there. So Loki apologized, and the gods believed he would never do anything so reckless ever again. (sighs) I wonder if that's going to hold up. So gullible. (laughs) So the most beautiful of the gods was Balder. And everyone loved him. Not Thor, not any, not the other Hensworth, Hemsworth. <laughs> None of the Hemsworths. <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah, his name was uh, B-A-L-D-R. There's no no vowel there. Okay. Baldr. And he had hair? 
I think he did. Okay. It was beautiful and pure and everybody fucking loved him. Uh-huh. But he had this, he started having these crazy dreams that he was going to die this terrible and violent death. So his mother, Frigg, was upset by the premonitions he was having. So she set out to demand a promise from all living things to never hurt her son. So with all living things in unison, Frigg knew no one would harm Balder. So the guards, uh, the guards, the gods turned this into a game. And so they started throwing rocks and weapons and shit at Balder. But all the items would either disintegrate or just fall before his feet. So they thought it was funny because they're like, ah, mortal won't get hurt. <laughs> yeah, no, he was a god. My bad. Balder was a god. Anyway, so they were happy. The other gods were happy. But Loki found it all very irritating. Mm-hmm. So being a shapeshifter, Loki changed himself into an old woman so that he could talk with Frigg, Balder's mom. And he commented on how amazing Balder was and how he seemed to be invincible. But it was then that Frigg admitted that she skipped one plant when asking for her son's protection from mistletoe. What? Whoa. She didn't ask Mistletoe to not hurt Balder because I, it's so small and delicate. Why would she tell Loki that? Because she he was an old woman. Oh, right. Remember? Yeah, Shapeshifted. Right. She's just gabbing and gossiping right. with the other bitches down the, back there. Wow. So, and lo- also, you got me going like, where did the whole legend of Mistletoe come from <laughs> right, with the kisses? Exactly. Does it come from this? Doesn't sound like where this Mist- is going. Mistletoe? <laughs> So then Loki goes to Earth and grabs some fucking mistletoe and he comes across Hod, who's this blind god, and asks him why he's never thrown anything at Balder like the other gods did. And Hod replied that because he was blind and had no weapon, he never saw much of a reason to join in. So Loki gave him the mistletoe and told him he would guide his hand and Hod agreed. So of course, as happens, the mistletoe struck Balder in the neck and instantly killed him. <laughs> Wait, if it was so delicate and it can do that, then why would she... I know! Frig, you Frig, meatball! You friggin' idiot! You friggin idiot. <laughs> <laughs> so Loki immediately breaks his cover by starting to laugh and he's like oh he he and they're like oh so he starts running the gods <laughs> that old catch lady's him. giggling <laughs> oh Loki at a death oh that get him so the gods catch him and as punishment this is where it's not so funny and light they removed the intestines of one of Loki's sons and used it to tie Loki to a rock in a chamber and then there was a cobra that would drip burning venom on Loki's face for the rest of all eternity whoa so Loki's wife Sigu demanded that she would be allowed to stay with her husband and the gods agreed so Sigu would stand with a bowl to catch the venom but she would sometimes have to leave to dump it out and during this time Loki would contort in pain as the venom dripped on his face and this my friends is the Norse explanation for earthquakes Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> took a turn. That, took yeah, a I turn. didn't expect that at the very end. This sounds... Cr- so he pulled like a prank that he thought would be funny. Well, but Balder got murdered. Well, he knew that somebody was going to get killed? Yeah. Yeah, okay. I mean, I wouldn't have assumed that a mistletoe would hit him in the neck and kill him. Like, no, sounds but- like Balder has some bullshit, like, tissue paper skin. Yeah. But, like, okay, so if Logan knew that, because then... Because they turn on him, it's like, the what is the lesson here? Like, don't pull pranks, otherwise people may way overreact, or they may react correctly. Not clear what... <laughs> the lesson is and or if this was created to explain earthquakes you know what I mean religions are weird (laughs) right right what is the parable that you're supposed to pull they're both they're trying to explain like the origins of natural natural science yeah 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 and then also trying to impart some kind of moral or whatever yeah I mean do you know anything about also like in Norse mythology, how the world was created. Can I tell you? No, please do. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. So I thought you were actually asking. I was no, like, oh, no, I don't no, know. I what have, am I? I'm I sorry have, that I'm going to ruin the segment. <laughs> I have two more mini legends. They're smaller than the others. Do it. Before the world existed, there was nothing but an empty space known as Gungunga Gap. 
<laughs> Great. Gap. I don't know. Pre-Big Bang. <laughs> so in Gungunga Gap, there was a sea of fire and a collection of glaciers that eventually collided. And the result of the collision was Emer, a hermaphroditic being who created the first giant. Within the frozen glaciers, there was a god named Buri, who was the first of the Esser. And a few generations later, Odin who was half Esser and half Giant, was born, along with his two brothers, Vili and Vey. So eventually, the three of them, the three brothers, got together and decided to create a new world. But in order to do that, they had to murder Emer, the hermaphrodite, and they turned each of his body parts into a part of the world. So his skin became the earth, his skull became the sky, his brains became the clouds, his blood became the sea, and his bones and teeth became the rocks and pebbles. Whoa. <laughs> I know it's like puts the Old Testament to you're kind of like oh yeah we were this all is way more creative yeah. <laughs> it's a being yeah now this is a, a delightful like you, you know you use every part of the walrus yeah man to, when you're creating not want the that. earth <laughs> <laughs> this is a little bit well I want to say it's lighthearted but it starts it's, that way okay so Thor we know a lot about Thor. Thor went nuts one day when he woke up and found that his hammer, Mjolnir, had been stolen by a giant named Thrymmer. Thrymmer offered to return the hammer only if he was allowed to marry Freya, who was the goddess of love. So Thor agreed to this, of course, but when Freya found out about it, she was like, fuck no. Right. So she's matters. a human, you know? <laughs> hashtag me too, hashtag time's up. <laughs> so, so then Thor goes to plan B. As you do. And yeah. he dresses to the nines as a lady to try to pass his Freya. Perfect. As Will Smith did in Wild Wild West. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> just dancer. like that scene. <laughs> so he goes to Thrymmer's castle with Loki by his side, who had shapeshifted into a handmaiden. And the two, like, made it through the pre-wedding feast without blowing their cover and got Mjolnir when it was brought out during the wedding ceremony. And apparently the myth ended with Thor in full queen garb, killing everyone in the room. What? He gets his fucking hammer and just, awesome. just just blood wedding or red wedding yeah, red or whatever. Wedding and yeah, red wedding the whole thing. That kind of sounds awesome. Right. This is all show you, Hammer. Wow. Anyway, yeah, so. What pissed him off again? He's so exactly. he fucking got his hammer stolen. He, he, if, he was, if I had a hammer. Yeah, if I I'd had a hammer that was. Murder in the morning. <laughs> the metaphor of my own dick, murder I'm assuming. in the evening. <laughs> I want it back. So at one point, Jim Carrey is making a bunch of balloon animals, and then he turns one of the balloons into a Tommy gun, oh, and then right. kills all of the guys who were pranking. A Tommy gun. <laughs> exactly. I remember that. So I looked into the Tommy gun. Love it. Do you know why it's called Tommy? Well, it was invented or at least like commissioned by General Thompson. Perfect. And so it was the Thompson. Right. That was what it was properly known as. Thompsony gun. It was like the first ever submachine gun, and it was most famously used by gangsters in Chicago in the 1920s. Is this Capone? Part yeah, particularly okay. surrounding Prohibition. Yeah. But it was also used in almost every war until Vietnam. No way. Oh, I mm -hmm. didn't know that. I definitely always have associated with mafiosos. Right? Before the Tommy gun, the best close quarters weapon for a soldier was the bayonet. And rifles were good for long range, but if an enemy was in the trench with you, you were pretty much fucked. Sure. So the Tommy gun became the perfect, like, within the trench gun. Because it's kind of like light, right? Like, it's that's its appeal. Right. Like, that, yeah, that's what the classification submachine gun is like. It's not yeah. as heavy as a machine gun, but it still, like, fires. It, yeah. it fired between 600 and 725 rounds per minute. Jesus Christ. Christ. It but had it, a yeah. magazine that could hold about 20 to 30 rounds, though. So if you just right. like held it down within uh, like a couple seconds, you've... Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. Much like we see in the film. Exactly. 
So although it was vent- invented for World War One, it actually never fought in that war because the first production Tommy guns rolled off the lines the day the war ended. No way. Literally on okay. Armistice Day. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Shitty timing, bro. So, or was it the best timing? Or Who knows? It, I, yeah, it depends on how you look at it. <laughs> so it was best known as the Thompson or Tommy gun, and it actually had a bunch of nicknames like the Annihilator. Or the persuader. Oh God! The trench broom. Right. The I gave him an offer he couldn't refuse. Or... <laughs> <No>. <laughs> the chopper. Okay, <clears throat> I like it. The Chicago typewriter. Which Love I think it. that's I my like favorite. That. And the Chicago organ grinder. Mm-hmm. The, All right. Chicago was in a number of the names. Because, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it was marketed to police as the anti-bandit gun, and and that it was the safest gun to shoot on city streets. That was the marketing for it. No. Mm-hmm. I wonder why they said that. Be- be- so that cops could feel comfortable right. shooting like, gangsters. Right, it's not. Because it's not at all. It <laughs> sprays wildly. <laughs> we also gave it to mailmen because there were a lot of postal robberies at the time. And then the term postal wound up being turned around when they started shooting using up them. The fucking, oh my God, history. <laughs> history. Oh. And you could buy or rent one at any hardware store in Chicago. It's almost like... Today? Today. <laughs> it's a little bit like that. No way, dude. Well, because it took a while for police to realize how popular the gun was with gangsters. So then it stopped being sold at every local hardware store. Oh, my gosh. And, like, as a final little tidbit, it fits perfectly in a violin case. So every time the <laughs> Philharmonic opens their cases, you never know what's going to pop out. Science. Did you have any favorite lines? Well, they already said smoke. Sorry, I'm like, you thought I was going to say, I'm like, Yes, I do. (laughs) Smoking, of course, but my favorite is P-A-R-T. Why? Because Because I gotta. gotta. And then, of course, get out of here, you bother me. (laughs) Get out of here, kid, you bother me. I've always loved that. And then one that's not mask said was the fucking detective who's like, those pajamas are impossible. This oh, actually happened. That's such a great line. <laughs> <laughs> the pajamas. This actually happened. Right. Yeah. But certainly no lines that had anything to do with any moralistic. Nothing <laughs> or like thematic. we all wear masks. Right. Metaphorically speaking. Metaphorically speaking. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of great Jim Carrey lines, but nothing that I think is like, well, what was the what was yeah, the thought? Exactly. <laughs> you really uh, pull away from that film. <laughs> I fucking love it. But I did read that. But the DVD slash Blu-ray contains two deleted scenes. Oh, really? One was an opening scene with the Vikings coming to bury the mask on the shore. Oh, yeah. So it would have been a direct Loki connection. Right? Oh, oh. Yeah, Jumanji style. <laughs> yeah. Just like, oh, this ravaged our community. We better get rid of it. Oh. Yeah. Now, another scene that was deleted was in the warehouse after Peggy, that reporter chick. She turns Stanley over to Dorian, and then she asks for a reward, but Dorian picks her up and throws her into the printing press with a newspaper printing out that shows her smashed face and says she died that night but it was deleted so that peggy could be brought back for the hoped for sequel and it was also deemed too dark by spectators during test screenings but yeah the never made but hoped for sequel would have had dorian returning to be like a total dickhead he's Uh the bad guy and then the mask would be worn by a woman as happened in the comics but instead we just had son of the mask right Jamie Kennedy Kennedy, we haven't seen it (laughs) fuck that came out way too late after the first one for me to ever see it but yeah 
I learned that I want to learn a hell of a lot more about Madame Tussaud. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I want to learn about physiognomy, which yeah. is what I was talking before about like profiling people's faces to determine yes. who's a criminal. <laughs> You know, that also just makes me think, like, I want to learn about phrenology, which is, like, understanding the shape of the skull to know how smart somebody is. What? This was, like, an 1800s pseudoscience yeah. where it was, like, touching your skull and understanding the shape of it was, like, un- it. a lot yeah. of extrapolations were made that are not scientifically accurate. Right, yeah. I'm mostly interested in that of, like, you know, how long they were looking at death masks, for example, to yeah. be like, let me yeah. compile what a fucking criminal looks like you know yeah. and then when ted bundy came along they were like we don't even know he's too attractive we just don't know <laughs> and then finally i want to look into camera purses because remember when camera diaz comes into the bank and she's yes. like trying to stake out the joint and she's got a purse uh, that has a camera inside right. i i wanted to find funny I mean, places point, to put a camera like, i gotta you think put that you could have a purse and if you like cut a little hole in it you can yeah. put your phone in there right <laughs> you know like but, a gopro they, yeah but they and there's it felt so just like old like yeah. I have a camera that's I'm you can focusing. hear the lens moving yeah, <laughs> exactly. yeah, yeah. you can hear it zooming <laughs> anyway I love this movie forever yeah. and always Jim Carrey thank you for yeah. all the work you've done somebody don't stop you don't stop you <laughs> well he seemed to have been mostly stopped yeah he's fine he's good with that please rate and review us on iTunes you can find us at oh that's a thing.com you can find us at oh that's a thing on Facebook and Twitter I'm at it's a joy yamiya on Instagram and Twitter I'm at Jeffrey Ekman and we're gonna be off next week but you can find us here the following week doing the movie the time machine oh, starring that's right. guy dumbface Pierce oh guy dumbface Pierce I'll be in jazz fest next week y'all but we'll see you next week the week the after that week after that it'll be great bye <laughs>